Hello, this is AJ Bingham, and welcome to episode 103 of the BG Podcast. I have on today returning guest, Councilmember Jimmy Flanagan of District 6. Welcome back to the show, Councilmember Flanagan. Hi, AJ. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, so this is a special episode for us where you and your colleagues unanimously passed the FY21 budget uh, yesterday, August 13th, and uh, we wanted you to get back on today's Friday recording this on the 14th just to discuss um, the process, uh, particularly, um, you know, for some camps, significant victories around the uh, reallocation of funding and personnel from APD, and also that ties into your work as chair of the newly recently formed uh, Public Safety Committee, and onward, we also want to talk about your campaign um, going up for election in November. Well, with that, though, I want to cede the floor to you to just talk about the last several weeks, <laughs> and it, it is much, could, it, as much of that could be encapsulated into a you know, a few minutes. I know it's been several months of work with you and your staff as well on this. And I'll, I'll that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a journey. Uh, you know, it started, I mean, honestly, it started way before June. The, the groups and the community groups and the POC-led groups that have been working on these issues using phrases like defund far before or long before June, uh, you know, it, but it did come to a head. Then, uh, with the protests and the kind of awakening of, of much of this community, and the vote that the council took in June, but that that just initiated a process. You know, on the council, I am also the chair of the public safety committee. So for the last two months, uh, I have been holding public meetings. They're all on ATXN.TV for people to see, uh, going through the issue, going through the questions, going through the possibilities that led up to the budget vote that we took this week. But even the vote that we took this week is not the end. Because in fact, while the headlines, many, if not all of them, are pretty incendiary, talking about $100, $150 million, in reality, we didn't really cut much at all. A lot of what we're talking about was future spending that we're declining to do, like on future cadet classes, until such time that the training academy is reformed. Uh, But then we identified a lot of areas that we think could be housed in other departments, that might be better managed, might reduce conflicts of interest between uh, the staff, the sworn staff that do the work and the departments that either interpret or oversee like internal affairs or forensics. And by separating those functions out, you see across the country, you get some better outcomes. Uh, And then we took a big chunk of the budget and said, you know what, we'd love to be able to reallocate this to stuff too, but we're not quite sure how to get there yet. So we're just going to put this in a a side bucket and keep working through this. Mm -hmm. We did fund some things. We funded more EMS. We funded more workforce development. We funded more permanent supportive housing and shelter space. Uh, We funded um, some public health and some even some park stuff. I mean, a lot of great initiatives that are going to help keep the community safe, especially stuff related to EMS that's really important in a a pandemic. And then with the vote, we, we are not even resting a day. On Monday, I will be chairing the Public Safety Committee again. Uh, because we already scheduled knowing how things were going to head that we had to keep doing the work. So Monday, we're going to have a full conversation about mental health first response and the types of options that are available to send other types of first responders than just officers so that the officers we do have can stay focused on the types of calls that really need officers. I got it. And so, yeah, more work's coming on that. Just for folks, you know, I was watching the last several days the budget hearings and also the commentary um, playing out on, on Facebook and all the different social media accounts. I mean, I, I, yeah, it's an interesting observation because it, this more or this afternoon, rather, I saw 
from the other side, there were other side being groups that were in the defund APD camp that said, you know, obviously in their mind didn't go far enough this sweep. Um, you know, there's just, I mean, you might have seen those groups already. And obviously on the other side of that too, there were groups that were lamenting the, the downfall of Austin and, um, you know, all the crime in the streets and everything else, unfettered and all that. Um, what would you say just to the more sort of the, to the, the former, the latter group rather, in terms of, um, and I'm sure you've seen, you know, you probably have gotten comments directly to your email and on your and Facebook and everything else about this, just the, you know, the folks are saying it's the, you know, they're just calling it the, the downfall of Austin. And <laughs> this is audio, it's his face, but. <laughs> right, it's just, it's just completely ridiculous. And, and it's, it, it's so, it's so unfortunate because, you know, the, the reforms that we're looking at and the changes that we're looking at, I truly believe are the most fiscally responsible reform concepts in municipal history. We're talking about taking what is the largest bureaucracy at the city, by a mile the largest bureaucracy at the city, and reimagining how you could do that work cheaper, faster, more targeted to the need, and enabling even more resources in the areas where those resources are needed. As we've gone into the data, 911, the one 911 call data was, was stunning. You see one example is uh, false alarms. Thousands of respondents, thousands of false alarms per month where officers are going and over 90% are false alarms. Over 90% like are false alarms. Similar to the case, like the, uh, like, uh, like, uh, the case with uh, Michael Ramos a few months ago, um, you know, seemingly a, uh, a fake 911 call, those kind of well, things. You know, you know, it's a challenge when you also have parts of the community that feel that the way to get more police response is to misrepresent whether or not someone has a weapon. Mm -hmm. that, that's a separate challenge that is far more community sociological than it is about the hard data. But you don't even have to go down that road. You can just look at the hard data. Half of the calls that police go to, they don't even write a report. So if there was no crime because there was no report, maybe there are other ways to provide response. And, and that's precisely the type of work that we're, that we're exploring. And if there are other ways to provide response, they'll almost certainly be more affordable to the taxpayers than officers who, for all the right reasons, are highly trained, highly paid, and in Austin are the highest paid officers in the state of Texas, and, and uh, carry with them a pretty high liability because of the weapons training. So by, able, by, by allowing us to reimagine these types of service provisions, you can actually save money and have more available resources for public safety. So a lot of this probably caught up in the defund part. And that's what, at least from my observation, it was very much keyed in on that early on. And, you know, the, the implications that that were, you know, it's pretty clear would have people. And yet there's a lot of inefficiencies in the system too. I'll give you another example. I did a ride along with APD, this is maybe a year ago, if I'm remembering my dates correctly. Although during a pandemic, it could have been last week at this point. <laughs> I agree. Uh, I went on a ride along and it was just a fascinating experience to see at least in this one example, what the officer's evening looked like. And, and I very intentionally said, you know, I don't want to ride along with someone in my part of town, which has very low crime and very low incidents. I wanted to go somewhere where the officers were more active so I could see what that work looked like. And we spent hours, hours, waiting around at central booking. There was a, a, a person that he picked up who he believed was driving while drunk. 
there was the whole like field test thing. I got to see all that go down. A lot of officers showed up in an, in an environment that was not dangerous. But, but all that aside, we then took the person to central booking and sat around for, I think, four hours. Is this really the best use of that officer's time to sit around for four hours in central booking? So there's absolutely time that officers are spending that is not uncommitted time that's used in this like community policing parlance. It's not on patrol, but it is in fact could be spent better in other ways or with types of staff that are not tasked with the types of jobs we give officers. There's so much good opportunity to better spend taxpayer money to achieve public safety than the bloated and enormous bureaucracy that has evolved over many decades. Got it. You talked some too about, uh, I know, I think the last two weeks, maybe the last three weeks, you can never know COVID, about, I know there was some work to transfer some of the Public Safety Commission uh, roles and duties to the Public Safety Committee. The difference being Public Safety Commission is a citizen panel, a uh, citizen appointed panel, like council, yours is obviously, uh, your committee is council, the council members. But what were some of the, um, I guess some of the, the shifts that would, would be sought to be moved to your to your uh, your committee. So it can get confusing. You know, government can often get confusing. The city has a a big, a large system of boards and commissions. Citizen appoint or citizens serve on the boards and commissions. Almost all of them appointed by council, uh, and each council member generally gets to appoint one person, so that each commission has like one from every district, and. Unfortunately, you know, those commissions do a lot of work and these volunteers, citizen volunteers put in a lot of time and then their recommendations sometimes, I would argue often, get lost in the mix of the busy work on the council. So now that we have the committee with basically the same name as the commission, so the commission is the citizen-led, committee is the council, we're looking at how to marry those two bodies together in a way that is far more productive and more valuable use of the citizens' time who participate. And so for me, it's, it kind of flows in a certain direction where the Public Safety Commission is a perfectly valid place to be vetting ideas from the public, different types of concepts, and, and most importantly, taking public input. The committees generally don't take public input, they're more work sessions. So the, the commission, in partnership with council, we could help guide the types of things that they should be spending their time on so that there's a landing place for it at council. You see a lot of commissions sometimes will do work that a commissioner happens to want, but there's not a lot of appetite for it on the council, and so there might be some wasted time. So there's some, some things to solve there. The committee work I have found is most valuable when it serves a role of oversight on items the council has already approved. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work to do what the commission does. It doesn't work for a committee to say, hey, maybe we should do this thing and we'll do some work in advance and then we'll send it up to the full council to look at because then you just rehash all the things that they did at the committee. They've just kind of wasted a bunch of time. But the reverse is actually very valuable. If the council has already said, this is the stuff we want to see, the committee then can do the more detailed, detailed work with city staff to say, all right, what's the progress look like? Are you moving this along? Don't let this fall to the bottom of the pile. Or what I find happens sometimes, Council will adopt a resolution that has 100 things in it, and two of them end up not being doable. Well, the staff sometimes might say, well, you can't do any of it now because we can't comply and it gets stuck, as opposed to having a place at a committee where the staff could say, well, can we tweak this little bit? Can we tweak that little bit so that all the work can move forward? 
That makes sense. Do you see, and, and having served in a commission uh, for you know, a prior, prior uh, lifetime, and also just observing commissions on the citizen side too, you see a lot of, again, these are very committed folks who are giving you know, hours their, their evenings uh, once, or beyond once a month meeting. Um, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll set resolutions to council that, I mean, just, you know, candidly don't really, more, by, by and large, don't go anywhere. Do you see the potential for what's happening with the commission to the committee and public safety being something that would be emulated with certain other um, boards and commissions? And obviously, there are more, they're more uh, citizen commissions and there are members of council to, to be on those committees, but just even if it's, if it's several several public or citizens commissions that could be umbrellaed over certain um, you know, health and human services probably on the, on the, on the, on the council side. Um, because I, I mean, I agree. I think just, you see a lot of people give a lot of effort on resolution that don't go anywhere. Yeah. And you know, the, the challenges of the committee process and the boards of commissions process is something I was looking at right after I got elected in 2017. You can actually go up on the council message board, austincouncilforum.org, and if you scroll back enough pages, you'll find posts that I made back in early 2017 proposing somewhat of a similar model where the council committees would seat members of certain commissions on the same dais so that the conversation and the collaboration can happen kind of as equals. Uh, unfortunately, at the time, there wasn't a lot of appetite to continue reforms of the committee or the commissions, so it just kind of didn't, it didn't go anywhere, and then I moved off to other, other things that, that, where there was more willingness on the dais to move. So I'm looking at this as an opportunity to kind of do what you said, AJ, to, to model a new approach, a new approach for committee work for the council, new approach for commission work for our citizen volunteers that will hopefully mean that the time spent is far more substantive and productive to addressing the public policy challenges that we're trying to address. It seems efficient. Um, and, and, you know, segueing to that, so you have an upcoming election, or yeah, upcoming campaign, or campaign, current campaign for an election for your second term. For those who don't know, Austin, Austin Council members and the mayor are all term limited to uh, two four-year terms. Councilmember Flanagan is wrapping up his first four years, hard, hard fought four years. Uh, for those who were in District 6 around Austin or members of his early campaign, uh, epic campaign videos um, and yeah to talk about just the campaign I know we know the filing deadline for all candidates in this upcoming cycle and there uh, is on Monday 17th at 5 p.m. yeah basically Correct? yeah yeah so at this point I know you have you, we're gonna interview you have two challengers um, but what's going on in the campaign you know we were it's it's wild how much time how fast time has flown uh, election day is November's com is coming up on the horizon. What's going on as of the 14th it's Friday on the campaign and what we're having people get involved who want to support you. So yeah, the, the campaign, uh, you know, the campaign cycles in Austin are, are different than they are in other communities. There, there are fundraising limits and finance deadlines and, and things that, that are much stricter in Austin than they are in other places. So you really don't see campaigns wrap, uh, ramping up until you know, May, June. And so we've, we've been uh, building our team. We've got uh, some, some great folks uh, staffed onto the campaign side. We also have a, a, a whole leadership team, a volunteer leadership team from District 6 uh, that have been with me since I got elected. And so for four years with these citizen leaders on my, on my political team, We've been engaging the community, doing voter registration, doing vote by mail work, trying to get uh, as much 
heightened and elevated civic engagement as we could get. And now that we're in the formal campaign headed towards my name being on the ballot in November, uh, we're, we're doing more active fundraising. We got our yard signs delivered today so folks can come and pick up a yard sign or, or request one on the website. Uh, and we've got our, our volunteers calling voters in the district and uh, checking in to make sure that we can count on their votes in November. And of course, all of this, all this information is on my website, jimmyflanagan.com. And we are continuing our weekly live show, The Clawback Live, which I've been doing since last uh, September, mm-hmm. bringing on sure. guests, talking about the issues of the days, focused on the local level, getting folks good information about the decisions that are actually being made on city council. And, and I, I believe that the work that I've done over the last four years has been incredibly successful and substantive, not just for the whole city, although it has been substantive for the whole city, but also specifically for my district. We have implemented many traffic and pedestrian and safety improvements across the district, new stoplights, crosswalks, sidewalks, uh, 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 traffic calming devices. We've just done so much work getting improvements into District 6, but the work is not done. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anderson Mill Road, which was kind of my signature project in 2016, started construction this month. Very exciting to see that, but there are other projects that we got to get across the needle. The improvements on 620 that the Campo board decided not to do, and I fought hard to keep those, uh, we still got to keep fighting for those improvements. So there's still more work to be done that I want to do in my second term. I should mention, too, for those who aren't familiar with Austin or those who are in Austin but don't know the district system, District 6 is far northwest Austin. It actually straddles um, Williamson County. Correct, which is just north of, north of Boston, which is Travis County, um, but it's the furthest northern district you can go in, in, in Austin proper. I mean, and I'm a, I'm a South Austin guy. I mean, from where you're at, I might as well be North San Antonio. I grew up in Manchac, Road, William Cannon area. So I think of, you know, growing up, even now, it's not that far away, but I think of, like, man, there's some mills. Like, oh, that's, that's a schlep. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's a drive. I got packed provisions. Oh man, but it's just love. It's yeah, I was up there last weekend. Um, you yeah, know, just just just, uh, just doing a long drive, and I mean, if, I mean, just again being a South Austin guy and growing up, that was it wasn't a lot of development out there growing up in the you know mid, early to or mid to late nineties, two thousands, and then it was just blown up, not developed. Yeah, I would say over over half of my district, almost a majority of my district, was built just in the last twenty years. Mm-hmm. So, so you have a very different type of reality in suburban areas like my district than you do in core central city areas, just because you don't have two or three generations having lived in the same house. So folks really are, it's not so much about how long have you lived in Austin, it's more about, well, what's best for the future? Yeah. And, and I really prefer to think about things in those terms. This is not about trying to preserve some some idealistic vision that we think existed on the day we arrived in Austin. It's about what is the best future? for our community. And, and I really hope folks, you know, when you think about, when you think about that question, there, there are things in the past that we should not want to preserve, that we should very wholeheartedly seek to overcome and reform. And Austin is, is no stranger to a history of segregation. It's no stranger to a history of institutional racism. And you can go back, you know, within people's lifetimes mm-hmm. to find examples where neighborhoods had deed restrictions that specifically excluded African-Americans or going back farther and seeing how there was zoning laws used to push certain people of color into certain parts of town. Now, folks might say, oh, that was in the past, and that's, 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 that's ancient history, but it's actually not. 
because the, the rules and the policies that the council works on now that, that we've tried to reform now have roots in those disparities, have roots in that discrimination. And so the work is really important. It's important to not just roll forward what we have today as a status quo. It's important to be a passionate advocate for reform. And I think I've shown that, that I am that passionate advocate for reform. I agree. And council member two, on that note, it's interesting because there are folks who, I mean, again, I saw on comment boards after council's vote that were calling for just to, you know, the, that the 10-1, the, the current district system, the current council system was a failure, you know, X, Y, and Z. And like, well, and we've talked off, off the show before, but 10-1, this system is only five years old. It's not that old. It's, it's so new. And then also, to your point about institutional racism, I know, you know, I tell this to a lot of folks in Austin. I mean, one, folks first, or folks who don't know about the council, so you all, one, that how new this current system is, but also about the 1928 master plan, which you were referencing um, in terms of forced or by laws, legal segregation. And then also the gentleman's agreement that was a, um, you know, an informal deal where for, you know, for, again, for almost a generation, two generations, there was basically always going to be one black seat and one Mexican, Mexican seat on the council. Of the, of, we had the at-large system, right? And that held, no more, no less. And there are folks who, I, I think a lot of folks don't realize that, that yeah, I mean, no system is perfect, but 10-1, the first round of council had increased representation for the Hispanic community, right? And I would argue, too, just more geographic, geographic representation. Well, the geographic representation is undeniable. Yes. You know, live, I live in Williamson County myself, so I live in the other county that contains the city of Austin. Half of my council district is Williamson County. There's never been a person from Williamson County on the city council before. And, and, and I think it's probably accurate to say that District 2, where Mayor Pro Tem Garza lives, probably never had a council member from that part of town, which mm. is the opposite side of town for me. She's in southeast. I'm in northwest. And so there's, there's absolutely been broader geographic diversity on the council in addition to an improvement in demographic diversity. But ultimately, it's the ideological diversity that has been most interesting. People think that, that ideological diversity is about Democrat and Republican. That is not how it works at the municipal level. Municipal governance in Texas, just like school boards, are nonpartisan. You don't run as a party. And that's really important because, as I have often said, potholes are nonpartisan. The issues that we work on at the city don't fit neatly into those platforms. And there have been some pretty big drag-out fights between members of the council, which, if it were a partisan body, you could accurately say was all Democrats, myself included, but when you get into issues of development or zoning, you, you find that people have very divergent views. And even some issues we voted on recently, like there was an eminent domain case uh, uh, kind of in, in, my, in the district just next to me, but, but very close to my district and a lot of my constituents felt passionately about it. And folks from across the ideological spectrum were contacting me saying how important that case was, you needed to approve that case, it was really important to the neighborhoods, and, and we worked very hard to get it there and to get it there unanimously from across the whole city to take an action. It was not an easy vote to make happen. And then five minutes later, I'm getting partisan attacks in my inbox because to those folks, they think that things fit into left and right or R and D.
but they really don't. At the municipal level, you gotta read, you gotta learn, you gotta understand the details. When you do, you will find out why Austin is one of the greatest cities in the world. Well said. Well, Council Member, we're looking back to the, the, uh, the campaign trail, but thank you for your time. Jimmy Flanagan, or Council Member Jimmy Flanagan is a member for District 6. Uh, thank you for your time. And your Thanks, service. AJ.